many of you are thankful for Jesus tonight, truthfully? You're thankful for him. I was listening to this preacher on the way here, Wick something. I was listening. Every once in a while, I listen. I, I don't like listening to myself because I pick it apart. I really do. Oh, my Lord, I said that, and I didn't say this, and I... So it's not easy, but I was listening, and I was talking about just being in love with Jesus. That's one of the evidences of being saved. You're in love with Jesus. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And, you know, you you don't love him perfectly, but you do love him sincerely. There is a deep-down, spirit-to-spirit connection. Amen? So I thought he, he preached okay. Wick something. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 4. How many of you read ahead? Oh, I got half mass going on here. Well, I sort of read it, kind of read it, a little bit read it. How many of you read chapter 4? How many of you meant to? How many of you didn't even mean to? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got some honest people. We got some work to do. I didn't even mean to. How... <laughs> Amen. I like for you to read ahead because I like to see what the Holy Ghost tells you, what the Holy Spirit opens up to you, and so that you can kind of compare to what I share with you. But tonight we're going to look at chapter 4, and it's all about watch out for unbelief. Watch out for unbelief. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for the book of Hebrews, this incredible book written by an unknown, unnamed apostle. And yet, Lord, we know ultimately by the Holy Spirit of God. And we pray right now that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to understand, to grasp the truths and the promises in God's word. That, Lord, we would be blessed and we would, Lord, grow tonight. Can you just lift up your voice, everybody, and just say, Lord, help me to grow tonight into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Thank you, Lord. I receive your word as the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you're seated, turn to the person next to you. Don't look at me and say it. Turn to the person next to you and say, watch out for unbelief. Amen. Amen. All right. This is chapter four. Now, last time in Hebrews chapter three, We read the writer's continual warning. What was his warning? Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That is a constant refrain in the book of Hebrews, these first few chapters. Constant repetition. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And as we enter chapter 4, we're going to see the same type of admonition, that we not turn away or reject God's voice when he speaks. Amen? How many of you have learned the hard way that you pay for it if God tries to talk to you and you don't listen? Amen? I mean, there is a payday, right? Because if God bothers to talk to you, he's got something important to say. God never speaks that it's not highly, highly important and relevant. Now, so here goes chapter 4, verse 1. He's going to begin the same theme about not turning away, not walking away, not ignoring the voice of God. He says in verse 1, Therefore, 
Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. Everybody say fear. This ought to make you afraid. It ought to make you afraid if you don't enter into his rest, lest you come short of it. Lest any of you seem to have come short of it, that ought to make you afraid. All right? So any human being out there, you know, right now we have people watching by uh, webcast, and it's so good to have you. Welcome to the sanctuary, and we're glad to come into your living room, wherever you are. Uh, But people also who will listen to this on radio one day, I ask you, have you entered into his rest? And his rest is salvation. Have you entered into his salvation? Because he's saying, if, if you're coming short of it, it ought to make you afraid. That, that's a legitimate reason to be afraid. If you miss entering into God's rest, made possible for us through Jesus Christ. Now, the rest that he's talking about, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, was the promised land for the Old Testament wilderness wanderers. The promised land was called Canaan. Canaan was God's promised place of rest for them. But in the Bible's overall picture, Canaan was a type and a shadow of the ultimate rest coming for God's people, a place called heaven. So the Old Testament was types and shadows and sort of Fingers pointing down the tunnel of time to the day that the full, ultimate rest would come to God's people, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ, who is going to one day take those who know him into heaven, the ultimate Canaan. Amen? So the writer is exhorting the Jewish people of New Testament times who were coming out of the Old Testament Mosaic system and turning to Christ to be certain of coming all the way in. Now, let me remind you, Hebrews is called Hebrews because it's written to the Hebrews. It's written to Jewish people. And these Jewish people, it was in their DNA, as far down in your DNA as you can go, to be involved in the Mosaic, sacrificial, religious, ritualistic system. This is what they were raised in. Their parents were raised in, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, all the way back to Moses. It was ingrained in them, Moses, the sacrificial system, day of atonement, day of this, day of that, all, all of the feasts and whatnot. And now a new voice, a new call is coming to them, telling them that Messiah has arrived and his name was Jesus. So everything the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to has now arrived because all of it pointed to Jesus. And so now they're being told by the apostles and church folks that were out there witnessing that the Messiah that they had been taught to expect has arrived. And the religious leaders killed him, murdered him, hung him on a tree. But that same Jesus got up from the grave. And now he is in heaven as our great high priest. We no longer need Aaron or the Aaronic uh, priesthood. But now we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. There will never be another one, never be a better one. Okay? So you've got some of the Hebrews, some of the Jewish people, 
who are, have come fully and they've gotten saved and, 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 and they're noticing that the church is under great persecution. They're experiencing some major heat for coming to Jesus, all right? Their families are rejecting them. They're being outcasts. They're being ostracized by Jewish culture. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to divide father from uh, mother, uh, parents from children, friends. He said, I came, to, I came to be a polar. Listen, Jesus was a polarizing personality. His message was polarizing. His, his personality, his words were, were polarizing. And you either went with him or you didn't. He that is not with me is against me, Jesus said. And so now the message of Jesus is coming full force against this centuries-old mosaic ritualistic religious system, and they're being told, time to leave all of this. The Old Testament is passing away. A new covenant has been established, not by normal ink, but by the ink of the blood of God's Son. So you're being called to come out of the Old Testament system and the Old Testament covenant into the New Testament covenant, and now they're being persecuted. And, and some of them that have come all the way in are rethinking it. Should I go back? Is this really worth it? Is this price too high? I've lost my friends, my family, my job, my reputation, my standing in the community. Is this worth it? And they're thinking, rethinking, second guessing. And then there are some who were investigating the claims of Christianity, and they were just about in. And now he's addressing them. And he's saying, listen, you're just about in. Don't turn back now. You're just about in. Don't give up now. You're just about in. Come all the way in. And don't let this persecution in these tough times drive you back. So the, the message of the first few chapters of Hebrews that we've looked at so far is all about stay with it. Don't go back. Don't turn back. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen. Don't fall short of it, verse 1 says. And if you're falling short of it, you need to be afraid. Now, verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now, the them is the Old Testament people under Moses. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Because they didn't mix with faith what they heard. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, let me just unpack this a minute. The first half of this verse. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The word gospel means good news. Everybody say good news. How many of you are glad the good news came to you? And wasn't it good news when you got saved? And don't you thank God every day for the good news that made its way into your life, for the amazing grace that reached you. Amen? So the, the word gospel that he uses here means good news. And he's saying, just like Israel heard God's good news promise of a land of rest, Canaan, the promised land, we have heard God's good news promise of the land of rest made possible by Christ, the place called heaven. He's saying, we've heard God's good news message. Turn to Jesus 
and you will be saved. And one day he will come back and take you to glory, to the ultimate Canaan, to the real promised land. Now that's good news. But the Old Testament people heard a good news message as well. Moses brought it to them. Follow me out of Egypt. Follow me across the sea. Follow me through the wilderness. Learn to trust God. And I'm going to take you into the promised land. And the promised land is your land of rest. So he's drawing a a comparison between what the Old Testament people heard and what we in the New Testament have heard. Now, Notice that the good news they heard didn't do them any good. Why? Because they didn't mix what they heard with faith. Amen. They didn't mix it with faith. When they heard the good news of God's promise, they didn't receive it into their hearts by faith so that they expected what they were promised to truly come to pass. Their hearts, those wilderness wanderers, look at them, everybody. Follow them. Track them read about them, learn from them. Because notice, their hearts remain darkened with unbelief the entire time. They died on this side of Jordan. They never got to cross over. Their unbelief held them back. That's why this is entitled tonight, Watch Out for Unbelief. Because unbelief is a thief. Unbelief is a robber. Unbelief will keep you from what God has for you. I love faith, not unbelief. I want to believe God, amen? So here's the deal. When, when you and I heard the gospel message, the reason you're saved tonight is because you mixed what you heard with faith. You responded in faith. You said, wow. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard it, I was sitting in juvenile home, and I had a felony on me, which is gone now because I was a minor, but I was in big trouble. I'd never heard the gospel. And a man stood up and he quoted John 3.16 and brought a simple gospel message. But that message reached out and grabbed me by the throat. It grabbed my heart. And I heard it. But you know what? 50 other guys in the room with me, all juvenile delinquents like me, they all heard it. But you know what? When the invitation was given, only one responded. Moi. Only one responded. I got up all alone. And... and So here's the deal. What made the difference between me and the 49 others is I mixed it with faith. I said, wow, something tells me I just heard something true. I believe I just heard something true. And so I'm going to take advantage and I'm going to reach out and I'm going to pray per this man's invitation. And I mixed what I heard with faith and I got saved. The rest of them Now, they may have gotten saved later, but they didn't get saved that night. It was just me. I was all alone in the the, uh, prayer room with this preacher when he led me in the sinner's prayer. But see, God blessed me with the faith. God has given to every man the measure of faith. But we've got to respond to the word that we hear. And see, the same way you're saved is the same way you live out the Christian life. You hear the word of God and you mix it with faith. Come on, everybody. You say, I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It's mine. I'm going to grasp it. I'm going to reach out for it. I'm going to expect it. I'm going to believe God for it. And one day I'm going to obtain it. And that's what faith says. Amen. And so the Old Testament wilderness wanderers, Moses brought them the word of God over and over and over and over again. 
But never once did those poor people ever mix what they heard with faith and respond to God in faith. They always responded by complaining, griping, whining, and unbelief. And their unbelief was like a shovel that dug their own graves. And they died on this side, Jordan. And their kids got to go over when it was supposed to be them. That would bug me. I worked my whole life and raised these kids, and they get to go over, and I don't. But that's what happened. So is everybody with me? Say, mix the word with faith. So how do you read the Bible? When you read the Bible and you read the promises, do you mix it with faith? Do you say, that's mine. I receive that. I'm going to believe God for that. I'm going to pray for that. Do you mix it with faith? See, we don't read the Bible just for intellectual information. I read the Bible for the promises of God because by the promises of God, Peter said, I am made a partaker of the divine nature through the exceedingly great and precious promises of God. So when I read a promise, I lay hold of it, my faith lays hold of it, and I believe God. I've got several things in the oven right now that I believe in God to bring to pass. Amen? I don't see it yet. That doesn't bother me. Faith is not moved by what you cannot see. Faith is moved by the promises of God. So everybody say, mix the word with faith. So that entire first generation that left Egypt by God's power were not allowed to cross the Jordan into the land of promise. They never believed God. And it was evidenced by the endless complaining, fear, and statements of total unbelief. You remember when the 12 spies came back from checking out the promised land. They went over there and checked out their promised land. And they came back. Two of them were stoked. Ten of them were full of unbelief. The two said, we can do it. The ten said, oh, yeah, there's great big grapes, and we saw the land flowing with milk and honey. But, oh, people of God, let us tell you, it was filled with giants. There were giants, and we looked to them like grasshoppers. There's no way we can take them. There's no way we can defeat them. And instead of mixing with faith the promises of God, mixing the promises of God with faith, they said, we can't do it, and fear took over. And the entire first generation died without tasting of God's promised land. Wow. And what did it? Unbelief. Watch out for unbelief. Now, the writer now tells the Jews living after the resurrection of Jesus, don't turn away in unbelief because they didn't get into the promised land, but you won't get into heaven, the ultimate promised land. Don't turn away in unbelief but mix God's promise of heavenly rest with faith. Jesus told the truth. You know, there have been people in my own life to whom I've spoken God's word of salvation countless times, countless times. I'm talking about for years and years. I've talked to them about the claims of Christ, the need to be saved, what Jesus did for them. And I've always walked away amazed at how they hear it with their ears, but it stops there. It has zero effect on their life. You know why? Because when they hear it, they don't mix it with faith, and they remain lost. And it always breaks my heart because, folks, sometimes you only get one chance. God knocks. 
you may get one time when, when you are very aware that God is knocking. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. We tend to think, well, that's going to happen over and over my whole life. But there are people who get one knock. One. And that's it. And they say, well, I got the rest of my life. You know, I'll pay my bills, get my college degrees, marry my uh, my spouse and live my life and get my house and my white picket fence and spot running around in the front yard barking and have my neat little American dream. And then when it's all said and done, then I might look at religion. And then I might consider Christ. But they never get that chance because I've been around long enough, folks, to see people die when they least expected it. I'm not trying to be grim. I'm not trying to be macabre. I'm just telling you, I've seen it. I've been around a while, and I've ministered to a whole lot of people. And, and, and I've seen people who get one knock. They get one knock, one chance, and, and their life is, is over. And so that's why it says, when it, today, if you hear his voice, don't turn away, but respond. Mix what you're hearing with faith and respond to God in faith and be saved. Can we thank God for the amazing grace of the Lord tonight? Aren't you glad that you're saved tonight? Then in verse 3, he says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now let me read this out of the New Living Translation. It's a little bit more clear. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, In my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. So God is saying here, it's only those who believe, only those who believe that enter the rest, and the rest is heaven. And those who don't believe, don't enter. Notice how the only thing God required to enter into the promised land for the old covenant people was faith. And he says, only we who believe God can enter. Only we who believe God can enter. Can we say that together? Only we who believe God can enter. Can I tell you that's one of the most discriminating statements you'll ever read? People go, oh, that's discrimination. You better believe it's discrimination. Let me tell you, right there is a discriminating statement that only those who believe, only will enter into his rest. And it's the same for us now. We obtain the promise by faith. It has nothing to do, folks, with works, talent, self-improvement, being a good citizen, or going to church regularly. None of those things, none of those things bring us into God's rest. Only those who mix the promise of the gospel with faith enter into his rest. He continues in verses four and five. We know it's ready, that is the place of rest. Everybody say it's ready. We know it's ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. And that's talking about God, Genesis 2, 2 here. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Everybody say he rested. From what? All his work. God created everything in six days. And can I just be honest tonight? It's not 6,000-year days. In other words, 
some people take Peter saying, a day under the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So it took God actually 6,000 years to create everything. And they're trying to fit evolution into their theology there. But no, it's very clear. Six 24-hour periods, God created everything. And it, it, we can't even in our, on our best day begin to comprehend what that took. God created this stupendous, spectacular, incredible, complex creation in six days. Ex nihilo, he created something from absolutely nothing. His word created something out of nothing. God said, let there be, and it was. And it's just that simple. And so that's why I have no problem with the rapture. People say, how's he going to get us up there? He's going to speak, and we're going up. I mean, a God that can create everything we see here, taste, touch, and smell in six days, six 24-hour periods, has no problem calling you and me up into heaven. Amen? So the writer here is letting us know that God began this whole, this whole pattern of rest by resting himself on the seventh day. And that's where the Sabbath came from. God commanded his, the Hebrew people in uh, the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, to, it's one of the commandments, honor the Sabbath. We're to take a day of rest. Now, I'm not real religious with it because I can't rest on Sunday. Sunday is a day of labor for me, but I call it Emmanuel labor, not manual labor. But I think that the, the, the principle is this. There ought to be a day a week when you rest. Can I say that again? There ought to be a day a week you rest. That you, you kick back and you chill. If you go seven days a week and you keep going that way year after year, your body is going to turn on you somewhere down the road. You've got to have a day of rest. But that's another topic. Here's the deal. He's saying God began the principle of a time of rest. And he says in verse 5 now, Hebrews 4, verse 5, but in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. For he has spoken in a certain place in the Bible of the seventh day in this way. And God, this is Genesis 2, 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But then again, he says later in the Bible, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what he's telling us is though God put into place the principle of rest a day out of the week and an ultimate rest in heaven, even though he established that principle, if you don't come to Christ and believe on him, you will not enter into the rest God intended for you. He's saying that as God finished his work and then rested from it, so he's going to cause those who believe in his son to finish their work. Amen. And then to enjoy their rest. But it's a far greater rest than those that entered Canaan. It's the eternal rest called heaven. Folks, can I tell you, there's going to be a day. There's no more time clocks. There's no more alarms going off in the morning to get you up because you've got to go to work. You're going to enter into you. Now, some of you have decided to enter your rest way before you should. 
and you sit around, you watch TV all day and eat potato chips, and you may enter into heaven way quicker than God ever intended you to. But here's the deal. <laughs> the Bible is telling us here that, that the day is going to come when we're going to be done with our work. We're going to be finished with our work. We're going to be finished with our labor on this planet. We're, there's not going to be any more work by the sweat of the brow. But we're going to enter into our rest in heaven. And what a glorious, glorious day that shall be. No more alarm, no more time clock, no more eight hours a day, 40 days a week, no more paying taxes, no more paying bills, no more dealing with money, no more credit cards, no more debt, no more interest. Because work is going to be done away with as we have known it. Amen. It's an eternal rest in heaven. Now, the flip side is unbelievers will not enter into the rest called heaven, just like the unbelieving Israelites did not enter into the promised land rest, that first generation. So neither shall any unbeliever enter into the gospel rest. And for me, that's a chilling thought. I can't wrap my mind around eternal lostness or eternal punishment or eternal fire or eternal hell. But I have to tell you, Jesus talked about hell more than any personality in the Bible. Do you know that? And warned about it. Warned about it. And in hell, there's no rest. See, those who believe will enter into a rest. Glory, bliss, joy, peace, no sickness, pain, sorrow, depression, nothing a glorified body, that's them. But those who don't believe will go into another place and there's no rest. It's that Jesus himself said, they are tormented day and night. I can't wrap my mind around that, but because he said it, I will preach it. So how many of you would rather go into the rest called heaven, amen? Can we thank the Lord for his amazing grace one more time? Let, let me give you an example of what Jesus said concerning that eternal place. He said, there is no eternal doom awaiting those who trust him, talking about himself, to save them. But those who don't trust him, Jesus talking about himself, those who don't trust me, have already been tried and condemned for not believing in the only son of God. Listen to verse 19. Their sentence is based on this fact, that the light from heaven, being Jesus, came into the world, but they loved the darkness more than the light. For their deeds were evil, and they loved those deeds. Verse 20, they hated the heavenly light, being Jesus, because they wanted to sin in the darkness. They stayed away from that light, for fear their sins would be exposed and they would be punished. So Jesus said, if you have believed on me, you've already passed from death to life. You already have eternal life. All of you who know Jesus here tonight, you've already got eternal life. You don't have to wait for it when he comes back. You've already got it. You're just waiting for a great big change when he returns. But you've got the eternal life that Christ promised right now. You've been born again. And Jesus said, but those who don't have 
me, who have not placed their faith in me, don't have the light of life. They don't have life. They're dead, spiritually dead. And the reason they don't have the life that the gospel provides is because when they heard the gospel, they didn't mix it with faith, but they turned away and loved the darkness more than the light, loved their sin more than they did him or want him. And this is why persecution comes, everybody. Persecution comes because the lost who have rejected Christ don't want reminders of the light and the word and the life of Christ. So they reject Christians to suppress the truth and push it away from themselves. And that, sadly, is where much of our nation is today. So Jesus was very, very clear. There's two kinds of people. Those who have put their faith in me, and they have the light of life, and they have eternal life. Those who have not put their faith in me, they have loved the darkness more than the light, and they will die lost if they don't repent. Now, the writer continues in verse 6 and 7. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news, that is those under Moses, failed to enter in because they disobeyed God. Verse 7 So God set another time. Everybody say another time. God said, all right, this first generation has rejected my call to the promised land, but now I'm going to give another call. I'm going to set another time for entering my rest. And the Bible says that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted, today, when you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts. When you hear the gospel, don't harden your hearts. When you feel the call of God to repent and get right, don't harden your heart. Don't walk away. The first generation that failed to mix the good news of Canaan with faith failed to enter into the promised land. So God set another time, and the another time is the new covenant dispensation under Jesus Christ to proclaim another promise of rest for those who believe. And the rest that we've been promised is better than the rest they were promised. Amen? That's why the number one key word in Hebrews is better. Can we say better together? Better. Amen? So how did God first announce the coming of a new promise of rest under a new covenant? He first said it through David, centuries after Moses, but centuries before the coming of Christ. And David wrote, boy, this is just such a great example of how the Bible is the very word of God because of things like this. David wrote in Psalms 95, 7 to 8, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in Moses' day because he's now talking to people who are going to hear the new covenant call to a new kind of rest. Once again, we're warned that those who do not believe shall never enter into the spiritual rest that God's got for people who repent, either of grace here or of glory hereafter. You know, we ought to pause a moment. I paused when I was getting this message ready to consider that in the last two chapters, really the last three chapters, the Holy Spirit is sending out a clear and somber warning to all people to respond to the gospel when you hear it. 
I mean, over and over, the first three chapters, now the fourth chapter, is a constant refrain. Do you think God's trying to tell the human race something? When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I can carry that a little bit further. We believers, now we know God, we're his children, but he will speak to us, and he speaks to us all the time. And it's still crucial that when you hear his voice telling you, whatever, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. But when he speaks, respond. Mix it with faith and respond. Even if he's saying you need to repent, you need to get rid of this or rid of that, go here, go there, do this, do that. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. When you know he's dealing with you about something, don't harden your heart. Amen? Because here's the question we found in chapter 2. How shall we escape? If we ignore so great a salvation, the answer is you won't. Now, he continues to reason with them in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day of rest and another invitation that would come later. Because of Moses losing his temper, if you'll remember back, when he struck the rock twice to provide water for the people, Rather than speaking to it, which God told him to do, he said, Moses, just go out and and talk to the rock. But Moses had a temper. Man, he had a temper. Because I read today, (laughs) I was thinking, you know, he got in trouble first when he killed somebody. He he killed uh, an Egyptian, and he had to flee Egypt because he saw an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite, and that temper hit him, and he killed the guy and buried him in the sand. But it was found out, so he had to run. Then later, when he went up into the mountain to be with God, and he was there getting the Ten Commandments, heavy moment, because God engraved those stones with his own finger. And then God spoke to him and said, hey, Moses, now I'm paraphrasing, your people are really messing up down there. You need to go back down, because they are really, really blowing it. So he goes down, and he sees, I love this, Aaron. Aaron was his brother, his older bro. Now, the people were saying to Aaron, where in the world is Moses? He's been up in that mountain for a long time. We're we're growing impatient. Uh, we, We need a God. And Aaron said, give me all your gold. I love this. They gave him a bunch of gold. He melts it down. And the Bible says, the Bible tells on Aaron, the Bible says that he took an engraver, a, a, an engraver, and he engraved a molten calf. He turned it, he, he shaped it into a molten calf skillfully. And then the people began to worship the molten calf, and they said, this is our God. And then all of a sudden, here comes Moses coming down the mountain with his face shining in the dark. He's got the Shekinah glory all over his face. He's glowing, and he sees this calf, golden calf, and he lost his temper. He took those tablets of stone and threw them on the ground and they shattered. He grabbed the golden calf and ground it into powder and threw it into the water and then made the people drink it. I read it today. And then he faces Aaron. Now, how, do you, how would you like to face Moses? He, he's glowing like a Christmas bulb with the glory of God. He's looking at you with steam coming out his ears. 
And he says, how in the world did you let this happen? And Aaron, oh, I love this. It's the perfect, it's one of the great cop-outs I've ever read about. Aaron said, hey, the people gave it to me. I put it in this, in, I melted it, and, and out popped this calf. Literally what he said, out jumped this calf. He totally removed his own. I engraved it. I shaped it. I molded it. I made, oh, no, it just popped out. Moses, I had nothing to do with it. It just popped out. Then Moses, after losing his temper there, he lost it again, and it kept him from the promised land. Well, I really went off there, didn't I? But anyway, he had a temper. How many of you can say, I'm glad that God's heroes made mistakes? Amen? Come on, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but here's what the writer is telling us. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. He's making the point that if Joshua, because he was the one that had to carry the people in the promised land because Moses blew it. So he carries them over. And the writer is saying that if Joshua, by bringing Israel into Canaan, had given rest to all believers, then God would not by David later, centuries later, have spoken of another day and a state of rest to come. So we see that Joshua was only a type of Jesus, bringing believers into the true rest of the heavenly Canaan. The rest Jesus brings, the heavenly one, is better than the rest Joshua led Israel into. Amen? So here again, we have the word better. It's all through Hebrews in reference to Jesus. Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, and he brings a better rest than Moses and Joshua brought. Now the writer continues with the promise of heavenly rest. Verse nine, so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. There's a special rest waiting for us. Can you say with me, there's a special rest waiting for me. For the Christian, there is a rest coming from all of our labors, all of our battles, all of our struggles. It's a heavenly rest our Savior spoke of when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Of course not. I wouldn't have lied to you. But when everything is ready, I love that. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am, and that is when we enter our rest. Amen? What a glorious day that will be. The writer continues, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now let's move on. We're about to finish out this chapter. Next, the writer returns to this oft-repeated exhortation to respond by faith to God's new covenant call to come to Christ and ultimately enter heaven, God's rest for us. He's going to repeat again. Be sure you take advantage of the gospel. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The children of Israel, who forfeited God's will for them through disobedience and unbelief are the chilling example for all of us to not do the same thing by rejecting Christ. 
I wish that I could read this on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all of them, because I'm talking to the choir tonight because just about everybody in here is born again, but, but we need to get this down, everybody, because this is a holy word. This is the holy text. This is God's word. And look how he's telling us over and over again, be diligent, be sure, don't, don't walk away, take advantage of it, respond with faith, mix it with faith, don't miss the gospel opportunity to enter the rest that is eternal. Next, the apostle points out how God's word does not allow us to deceive the Lord or ourselves regarding the genuineness of our our profession. Now, before I read it, I quote this word, these verses, a lot. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. I preach it all the time, but there's a context for it. Now, here's the context for it. He's telling them, if you think you can fool God by professing something that you have not really turned to, if you think you can fool God by going around telling others, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, oh, you better know I'm a Christian. Our churches, folks, every Sunday, all over America are filled with people who don't really know Jesus. They are religious. They're do-gooders. They're well-intentioned, but they don't know him. He's saying, you can fool people, but you won't fool God. Why? Because the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents, the true motivations of your heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the context of these powerful verses about the word of God is this. He's been telling us over and over, don't miss it, mix it with faith, take advantage of it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't turn away, don't harden your heart. He's saying, if you think you're gonna go around and convince people and maybe think you're gonna convince God that you have come to him and that you have believed the gospel when in fact you haven't, The searching word of God will reveal the truth. It will sift you, and it will reveal the true motivations of your heart. Didn't Jesus say? He said, there's going to be people when I return who are going to say this, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? Didn't we cast out devils, and didn't we do this and that and the other? Weren't we involved in kingdom business? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There was never a genuine relationship. These people Jesus is talking about there were hijacking his name, probably making money off it, using his name, to get favor with people, to, again, make money, make income. 
fleece people. And Jesus is going to cut right through it and say, no, 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 no. And look, they're even calling him Lord. But Jesus said, no, here's the truth. My word has searched you. I never knew you, and you never knew me. So they thought they could fool God at the end of time, but they couldn't. Because the word of God is living and powerful and searching and revealing and piercing and exposing. And you can't get away from it. I never knew you. What a horrible thing to hear. I just can't. Oh, Jesus, help us all. What a horrible thing to hear at the end of time. At the, when you've gone into eternity and you face, to hear the words. Instead of, well done, good and faithful servant, I never knew you. That's why I was preaching on the way here on the radio, and I'll preach it always, that you've got to be born again. You must be born again, or you can't see the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. The all-penetrating and searching word of God will search us all out, and the truth will be known on that day. So since our hearts are totally laid bare before the Lord, we must be sincere and should not attempt to deceive him. Amen? I know this is a searching word, but I have to study it before I come and bring it to you. It searches me. I know I'm saved because of the promise of Christ. I know I know him by his grace. Do you know it? Do you know it at home? Do you know it listening on radio? Do you know it? In light of this, says the writer in verse 14, we've got two verses to go. We should hold tight to our profession of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Later on in chapter 10, we're going to see the writer saying to the true believer or about the true believer, quote, but we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. Amen? Amen. Now, next, the writer continues by showing the superiority of Jesus, and we're going to wrap it up, as our great high priest. He is our superior great high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. We have a great high priest that is better than Aaron, and that's what they were telling the Hebrews of their day. We, we know a better than Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. No, his name is Jesus. He's better. Our better priest has entered the very heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And because he became a man and walked this earth and fought the devil and experienced temptation and pain and rejection and sorrow, he can empathize with us in our own sufferings and temptations. He can reach out and love us and hold us and have compassion on us because he knows what we're going through because he's been there. Amen? What a blessing you know that Jesus is moved with compassion toward you and me when we suffer. The devil wants to tell you, oh, he's going to come squash you like a bug. You're going to hell now. God's done with you. But he's a liar because our great high priest, even when we stumble, he says, oh, man, I'm going to stand them back up again. And I'm going to forgive them. And I'm going to call them. I'm going to work with them because I don't give up. I don't walk away. I will never leave my true children. I won't do it. Let's stand together and read verse 16 out loud. In light of all these things that Jesus has done for us, 
What should be our attitude? Read it with me now. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen? Amen. The very fact that Jesus has done all these things and that he sympathizes with all of our struggles and has washed our sins away by his precious blood, we should be confident to boldly enter his presence with our prayer requests for mercy and grace to help us when we need it. Amen? Let's lift thankful hands to the Lord tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your mighty name. If you're thankful for our great high priest, who's right now ever living to make intercession for you and me. He's turning to the Father all the time on our behalf. Father, strengthen them. Father, help them. Father, heal them. Father, encourage them. Father, guide them and speak to them, Father. Forgive them, Father. He's such a good Savior. And let's say together, Lord, thank you. Then when I heard the good news of the promised land called heaven and the way to get there, Jesus Christ, I mixed the message with faith. And when I believed you, I was saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Well, I sense a rich anointing here right now. Can we just give the Lord a wave offering to say thank you, Jesus? Go ahead. Just, just have a thank session. Just go ahead and thank the Lord for all of his goodness. Oh, thank you, Lord. Where would we be without you, Lord? We'd be lost. We'd be dust. We'd be, we'd be in dire straits. We'd be hellbound. But, Lord, you loved us. You saved us. You gave us the faith to look up and call on your name. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Praise your name, Lord. Sing it, everybody. Chapter 5, and we're going to get into it next week. 
and we're going to learn the Word of God. It blesses my heart to see all of you here to learn the Bible. Amen? So let me pray for you as we go. Any announcements? Oh, TPC Talk. They're going to grab you as you're going out. Where is the camera? Over here. And they're just going to get, they're going to ask you, well, what did you think of the message tonight? Now, if you didn't like it, don't go to the camera. But if you can say something encouraging people, they go to the camera and say, oh, man, we learned some things. And don't be afraid of the camera. You look better than you think. Amen? All right, Father, in Jesus' name, bless the people of God. Thank you, Lord, for our great high priest. Now may that great high priest bless us tonight. And as we go out, Lord, we go out with favor. We go out with your blessing. We go out with your presence. And thank you, Lord, for helping us to respond to the voice of the Lord in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go.